you are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. Um, here we are on December 27th. This is kind of a funny week now, this time between uh, Christmas and New Year's, right? It's kind of a funny week. It's always kind of hard to tell what the date is and where exactly we are. Because now, Christmas is over. Christmas is two days back. Um, our decorations are starting to peel off the walls. Advent is over. And now we essentially move on with life. And a lot of people are left asking the question, Christmas happened, um, what's different? Uh, what difference did it make? What difference has this made in our lives? And as we've talked about for the last few weeks during the Advent season, Advent means to come. Because it is a celebration of the fact that Jesus came as a baby 2,000 years ago and that Jesus will one day come again in the future. It's looking back at Jesus' first arrival and it's looking forward to his second coming. And because we are between Jesus' two arrivals, as we talked about, we live in this tension. We live in this middle space between his two arrivals where, where the kingdom of heaven is here now, but it's not here in full. And so when Christmas passes, um, many of us are left wondering, well now, what difference did it make? Now some of the first people to hear about Jesus' birth was of course a group of shepherds, Right? In the middle of their work day, an entire group of angels showed up and told them about the birth of Jesus and gave them directions of where to go to find him. So they obeyed, they followed the instructions, and they found Mary and Joseph in the manger. And Luke chapter 2 records what happens next after they found Jesus just as the angels said, and then they went and they told everyone they knew about it. In verse 20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The shepherds returned, glorifying God for all the things they had seen. Which is the natural response to such a life-changing historical experience, right? But then what we have to realize is that this was just the beginning. Jesus, at this point, was still a baby, and it was still going to be 30 years until he would do anything. And so the shepherds returned almost back to life as usual, right? What did the birth of Jesus really change in their world for that in-between space as Jesus was preparing for his ministry? How were they supposed to respond to this life-changing event when now they were waiting? Well, it's pretty similar to the way that we respond here in this middle space. Now, it's been pretty well documented that in 1914, during World War I, the warring parties participated in the Christmas truce. Soldiers on both sides had a ceasefire for one day on Christmas to celebrate the birth of Jesus, and instead of shooting each other, they exchanged gifts, sang Christmas carols, played soccer, and just hung out. They paused all that violence for one day to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful picture of peace and God's love in the midst of one of the most violent events in history. But just a few short days later, they went right back to killing each other. And World War I, one of the most horrific events in history, 
still continued on. Because often it's easy to stop maybe for a moment or maybe even for a week after Christmas and and stand in awe and worship of what Jesus did on Christmas and then just go right back to the way things were. And then just go right back to the violence, the bloodshed, to the pre-Christmas time, essentially. And we're left wondering, okay, how can this birth of Jesus, how can Jesus being alive really provide us this love, peace, joy, and hope? How has this changed it? And the way that we live in to this is by recognizing that Jesus is still alive today. He is still alive and He is still active. And we live into who He is today as He lives and works and is active in our world today. In this middle space, that Jesus was born on Christmas, is still alive today. He's still active. In this middle space, that's what we hold on to. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to live in and consider who Jesus truly is. It's pretty important that we consider who he truly is. Now that he's been born and we're left wondering, okay, he's here, now what? We've got some time to wait in this middle space. How do we get through it and hold to his truth during this time? And so we're going to have a very CMA message. We're going to talk about who Jesus is in terms of the fourfold gospel. Jesus as our Savior, our Sanctifier, our Healer, and our Coming King. And that's what we're going to lean into this morning. Who Jesus is. In the words of Will Ferrell in his now infamous scene from Talladega Nights, Dear tiny, eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn baby Jesus, in your golden fleece diapers with your curled-up fat little baby paws pawing at the air. And he prayed to the baby Jesus. Um, and shortly after, everyone around the table began expressing their own visions of who they think Jesus is. One said that they like Jesus in a tuxedo shirt because who likes to party because they like to party. One pictured Jesus as a ninja who fights off evil samurai. Or Jesus with eagle's wings singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner. Will Ferrell's character loves most to pray to baby Jesus. And after his wife points out that Jesus grew up, he became a man, and please stop praying to baby Jesus, he responds with this. He says, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm the one saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus, or baby Jesus, or bearded Jesus, or whoever you want. And as silly and as inappropriate as this scene is, it paints a good picture of who Jesus is for a lot of people. He's whoever you want him to be. He's a little baby. He's singing for Leonard Skinner. He's whatever it is. And we live in a time where Jesus' identity and his story has really been just turned into maybe a myth or maybe just a construction of whatever you want it to be. And so people, just like Ricky Bobby and Talladega Nights, they have their own version of Jesus that they often carry with them after the Christmas season. It might be the happy, friendly, fun, loving, celebratory Jesus that we see on the walls of Sunday school classes, right? Where he's typically like blonde hair, blue eyes, and playing soccer or something like that. Or maybe it's the Jesus that is just always moved towards the poor and we just feel like Jesus was always hanging out with poor people and giving away everything. 
Or maybe some of us picture the Jesus who said, I came to bring a sword, to divide, to judge the living and the dead, and to bring justice. And that's the Jesus we picture. And we have to recognize just how complex exactly who Jesus is and how we root it, not in our own expectations or our own experiences or even our preferences, no matter how cute they might be, but in what the Scripture truly says about Jesus. And the reality is, Jesus wasn't just a baby and he wasn't a ninja fighting off evil samurai. He wasn't just a first century rabbi who had some really charismatic, groundbreaking ethical teaching. He wasn't just something that we say, oh, well, like Gandhi and uh, MLK like him, so that's a good thing. He's respected. But he was just a teacher. He got killed for his ethical teaching and maybe that's the end of the story. We have to recognize that the child that was born on Christmas grew up into the man who performed miracles because he was the God who came and stepped into the world to take away the sins of humanity. And he really is our savior, he's our sanctifier, he's our healer, and he is our coming king. And so as we look at that, of who Jesus is, we start with Jesus as savior. Jesus as our savior. Now, the message of the angels that they gave to the shepherds on that Christmas day was they said that this is good news of great joy because a Savior who is Christ the Lord has been born. Savior who is Christ the Lord has been born. And this is the only time in the New Testament that all of those titles are put together. Savior who is Christ has been born. Or some translations will say the Messiah. Because what we recognize is, well, Christ wasn't Jesus' middle name or his last name. That was a title. That was a title given to him as the Greek translation of the Hebrew title of Messiah. And throughout the Old Testament, God was the only one described as a Savior, and God was continually promising this Messiah. And the Messiah has all of these historical context that we could spend hours going into, but to sum up all of what the Old Testament said about the Messiah, the Messiah means God kept his promise. Because God promised the people of Israel as they were freed from slavery, as they were given a promised land, as they were given an inheritance, that one day he would give them a king who would rule an everlasting kingdom and who would make everything right. And this is all declared about who Jesus is. And he has said that he is going to be this Savior. And this Savior was an important thing that people were waiting for for a long time. This Savior was the one who would cause peace to flow through the world like a river, in the words of the psalmist. This king would put put an end to suffering and death. And in the words of Revelations, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or crying or pain. Or the way Paul said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because of this Savior, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The Savior, this Messiah, has come into the world. That's a good thing. He is the one in whom and through whom all things were made, and so he's the one who has the power to do these things. And so the only way, really, it's important to recognize not only Jesus 
as the Messiah, as the one who came to do these things, but that word Savior, as I said, that's only ever described as God. And so it's important here, the distinction that Jesus is God and he's the Messiah, because then he has the power not only to rule a political kingdom and to put some good policies in place that will help, but he's the one who can set the entire world right because he is the Savior. He is God himself. Now the thing is, this uh, this good news of great joy that the angels told the shepherds about, it's only really good to the extent that we recognize the world's need for a Savior, or even our need for a Savior. And while some people struggle with that, I don't think it's very hard to see the world's need for a Savior. Especially around Christmas time. It's really interesting how oftentimes some of the darkest events will take place right around Christmas. I don't think it's a coincidence. It's all too easy to see the darkness right around Christmas. All you have to do is Google events that took place around these dates and you'll see that there typically is an increase of tragedies and and catastrophes right around this time. And we have to remember that it was even surrounding Jesus' birth that Herod ordered the killing of every male baby two years old or younger. And we don't want to undermine all the good that happens during Christmas because so many people are moved to give gifts and God does so many amazing things in this world. But at the same time, it's almost as if the time when the light of the world was to come, the world is almost always trying to get back to its darkest state. And we recognize that we don't eradicate this darkness just by putting up a few lights or a tree in our house, right? And we don't do those things as distractions from the bad in the world around us just so that we can have a party and not think about those things. We recognize the darkness in the world and we recognize the contrast that it shows to the light of the world. That Jesus came into the darkness. That is why it's so significant that he is the savior, that he is the light of the world. We acknowledge that darkness in order to celebrate his light. Now, one of the most beloved Christmas stories is, of course, Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol, right? Every year, people read, perform, and watch this story. Our very own Seraphim Theater put on an adaptation of The Christmas Carol, Nick Rombo played the ghost of Marley. And, you know, nothing says Christmas like a good, scary ghost story. That makes no sense, but you did a great job. You were terrifying. But Charles Dickens, he wrote The Christmas Carol. He also wrote another little overshadowed book called What Christmas Is As We Grow Older, in which he powerfully described this process of celebrating Jesus' light while acknowledging the darkness. And so Dickens wrote this. He said, We had a friend who was our friend from early days, with whom we often pictured the changes that were to come upon our lives, and merrily imagined how we would speak and walk and think and talk when we came to be old. His destined habitation in the city of the dead received him in his prime. Shall he be shut out from our Christmas remembrance? Would his love have so excluded us? Lost friend, lost child, lost parent, Sister, brother, husband, wife, we will not so discard you. You shall hold your cherished place in our Christmas hearts and by our Christmas fires. 
and in the season of immortal hope and on the birthday of immortal mercy, we will shut out nothing. The season of immortal hope and the birthday of immortal mercy. And because of that, we don't fear the darkness. We don't look on the bright side. We don't ignore the pain in the world just because it's Christmas. Because it's Christmas, we recognize that darkness and we recognize our need for a Savior. And we thank God for providing that Savior. Because all of this darkness really just magnifies how important His salvation is. The difference that Jesus as our Savior makes. So, we live into the reality of Jesus as Savior. We recognize the difference that Christmas made by putting our faith in Him and accepting His salvation. Recognizing that regardless of how dark things are, we have eternal life. And, of course, the second one is we are motivated by this salvation to share it with others. When we see the darkness and the hurting in the world, we know that we, like the shepherds, we carry that good news um, that there's a Savior. And we share that with others. That's how we live in to Jesus as Savior, and that's the difference that Christmas has made as we move forward. So the second point, Jesus as our sanctifier. Okay, sanctifiers. It's all about sanctification. And sanctification is a really good Christianese word, is it not? If you want to show off your education level, anytime you go through a life-changing experience or you learn something, just say that it's a sanctifying experience, right? People will be really impressed. But sanctification, simply put, is the process of being transformed into the person of Jesus. It's growing in maturity in a way that results in us looking more like him. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us that separates us from our sinful nature and continually makes us more holy as Jesus is holy. Now a more common word for sanctification that's thrown around today is spiritual formation. Right? Spiritual formation. It's the process of being formed to be more like Jesus. And Dallas Willard, he defines spiritual formation like this. He says, spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. It's being transformed into the person of Jesus. And Jesus is actually the one who does this work in our lives. It's not just us striving to do better and and making really good schedules and rhythms in our life, but actually this is the Holy Spirit empowering us. This is one of the main roles that Jesus still has in our lives today, is making us like Him. And He makes us like Him by, by speaking to us throughout the day, by guiding us in the decisions that we can make in life that will reflect Him more. And He speaks to us in Scripture illuminating who he is and what his will is. And he teaches us by the renewing of our mind and through fellowship and relationships. However, one of the primary ways that Jesus works as our sanctifier is actually through suffering. It's actually through suffering. This is one of the primary ways that Jesus makes us like himself. After all, Jesus suffered immensely. 
And I wish I could say the primary way that you can be formed into Jesus is just by listening to my sermons, right? Or just by reading a few books. But it's not. It's actually through suffering that God does the most work in our lives to transform us, to sanctify us, to be more like Him. And that's the difference that Christmas has made. Is that no longer are pain and suffering just meaningless or no longer are they an obstacle for what we want to do in life, but because of the baby born of Christmas, because of Jesus being alive and working, He's the God who turns the bitter into the sweet. He's the God who redeems what the devil meant for evil and makes it work for our good. And so suffering and pain are actually one of the primary ways that Jesus sanctifies us. And that's why the biblical metaphor for pain and suffering was often as a crucible, as a refining fire that would make us stronger and more pure, more sanctified. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Peter says it like this. He says, in all this, you, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come to you so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That suffering is this crucible, it's this refining fire. Jesus, as our sanctifier, uses these things to form us and to shape us. But of course, we have to recognize um, we often, in America, don't handle suffering and pain all that well, do we? No, probably not. Um, A lot of sociologists and psychologists have recognized that really it's the more secular Western countries that are worst and least equipped to cope with pain and suffering. Tim Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he points out that the reason for this is that often the purpose of life for the Western secular person is survival, happiness, and comfort. And with this being the purpose of our life, while pain and suffering and discomfort have no meaning, they're simply obstacles to our purpose in life. And so when we come up against those things... Life is ruined. Nothing good could ever come of this. However, we have a God who turns the bitter into the sweet. We have a Jesus who sanctifies us and works in us through our pain and suffering. And so the difference that Christmas has made going forward is that instead of just seeing our pain and suffering as obstacles, instead of simply crying out to God, God, get me out of this, which there is a place for, and we're going to actually talk about that next, but instead of always crying out to God, God, get me out of this, the difference that Christmas makes is we can now say, God, what do you want me to get out of this? God, how are you forming me? How are you shaping me? How are you sanctifying me through this? How can there be potential for you to work in a good way through a really bad thing? God, what can I get out of this? How can this crucible strengthen me and form me to look more like yourself? That's a big difference. Something that Jesus does in our life.
He has transformed our pain and suffering. And he now sanctifies us through that. But now, as I mentioned, there are some times when it is most appropriate to say, God, I want you to get me out of this. That is why we have the good news that Jesus is our healer. Even though we live in this middle space and Jesus says that pain and suffering are guaranteed in this life. In this middle space, things will not go well all the time because he has not yet put the world back together. But nonetheless, in this space, he still offers healing. Jesus can and will and wants to heal our mortal bodies in order to give us glimpses of that eternal, imperishable, perfect state. And this is an important aspect of what Jesus still does today. He heals. Something that he did all throughout his ministry. He was healing people's bodies in order to show that he has the power over life and death. He has the power to bring shalom and wholeness. And he continues to be in that business today. He continues to work in healings today. And this is something that we have the privilege to ask him for. I might even go so far as to say, I think we have the instruction to ask him for healing. To pray for the sick. Okay? Because Jesus came in order to bring the kingdom of heaven here now. And while it isn't here in full, we have glimpses of that. And he calls us to lean in to the kingdom. To lean into him as Jesus our healer. The thing is, when it comes to Jesus our healer, this is one of the harder things to swallow for a lot of Christians. A lot of teaching out there will continually say, you know, this was only for a certain time and a season and it's not applicable today, or this is only for certain people, uh, you probably just can't do that. It's only for the elite disciples. But let me remind you that Jesus trained all of his 12 disciples to do it, and he instructed all 72 of the disciples he sent out to perform healing. Because it wasn't the people that were doing the healing, it was the Holy Spirit inside them. It was God that was doing the healing. And healing the sick is central and key to the work of Jesus even today. And like I said, I think it's something he actually instructed us to do. Now we're pretty familiar with the Great Commission, right? Protestant evangelicals love the Great Commission. It's very important and we pretty much all agree it's applicable today. But we usually use the Great Commission for Matthew. Now the Great Commission was actually recorded in all four Gospels. And Mark has a slightly different take on it. So look at how Mark recorded the Great Commission here. Mark chapter 16. These are Jesus' words. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. This is the Great Commission. And this is quite a different version than the one that we're very used to and that we all have memorized, but it's just as applicable, right? Now, uh, maybe sometime soon, Nick Rombo will teach about uh, the handling of snakes and drinking of deadly poison. Um, So thanks for taking that on, Nick. But I want you to key in to the fact that preaching the gospel, making disciples, baptizing, also includes healing the sick. 
this is part of the Great Commission. This isn't just for a selected group of elite disciples. This is for all disciples. This is for you and you and you and you because we have all been commissioned by God on this mission. And leaning into Jesus as our healer is part of that. But of course, I mean, we have to recognize this is an easy one to doubt, this role of Jesus in our life. It's an easy one to doubt. And I'll admit, I've prayed for more people to be healed who weren't healed than who were healed. But some of them were. Sometimes Jesus heals, sometimes he doesn't. Even when he was walking the earth in physical form, he didn't heal everyone. In Mark chapter 1, the whole town had gathered at Jesus' door. He healed various diseases. And then all of a sudden, he disappeared. The disciples went looking for him. They found him away from the people that were asking for healing. And Jesus just told them, hey, let's go somewhere else. Uh, I want to preach in another town too. And he walked right by all these people that were asking for healing. But that doesn't mean he doesn't heal. That doesn't mean we give up on it and we don't lean into asking for healing. We still continue to pray that Jesus would be our healer. When a husband has an opportunity to pray for his wife, he prays for her. When a parent has an opportunity to pray for their children, we do. Maybe the Holy Spirit is calling you to pray for a roommate, a coworker, a friend, a neighbor. Would you pay attention to that and would you lean in to the reality that Jesus is alive today as our healer? Would you pray for physical healing, emotional healing, relational healing? We saw great examples this morning of marriages that have lasted 70 years. But we celebrate that because it's kind of rare. So maybe there's a marriage we know about that we could pray for healing over. Because Jesus is our healer. And the difference that Christmas has made is that healing is available for the sick. That glimpses of heaven are available here on earth today. That when we're sick, when something is wrong, Jesus offers to enter in, to change the situation. And so we lean into this by asking him to do something about it. Sometimes he heals, sometimes he doesn't. Either way, we ask. Because Jesus is our healer. Okay, now this final point, this final main role that Jesus does in our life is Jesus is our coming king. That little baby that was born on Christmas is our coming king. He is the Lord of the universe who will one day come again and set everything right. The well-known author and theologian N.T. Wright shared a story of preaching at a large church one Christmas, and afterwards he was approached by uh, a professor that worked at the same university as he did, and he was a known uh, skeptic, and he approached N.T. Wright with a big grin on his face, and he told N.T. Wright, I finally understand why people like Christmas. N.T. Wright said, okay. Uh, he said, please tell me, why do people like Christmas? The man responded, because a baby threatens no one, so the whole thing is just a happy event. It means nothing at all. Problem was, that's absolutely false, right? That's the perspective of Ricky Bobby in Talladega Nights, not the perspective that anyone should actually have. 
He was far from a helpless little baby. This baby, born in Bethlehem, was the heir to the throne of David, who will one day come back, actually, as the king of the world. There's a reason King Herod, very powerful man, when he heard about what was happening, when he heard that Jesus was going to be born, he didn't respond with, oh, it's just a baby, he's harmless. No, he began a campaign to systematically kill every baby two years old or younger because he was terrified. Because he knew this was not a cute little harmless baby. And we know because we spent Advent in the book of Ruth that Jesus was from this royal line, right? The book of Ruth ended in the most exciting way it could have ever ended, with a genealogy, right? It ended with a genealogy, and and I know you guys don't believe me, but to the Israelite reading Ruth, that was really exciting. That was a big deal. Okay, And in the same way, the Gospel of Matthew begins with a genealogy. He begins in an exciting way. He starts out almost like an ad, really tries to maximize the first few seconds because they know that if they don't capture your attention right away, you're going to keep scrolling. Or it's a drum roll getting you ready for something exciting. And I know because of the responses that you guys give every time I mention genealogies, you don't believe me, they're exciting. So that's why we're talking about them again today. And I'm going to continue to talk about them until you find them exciting. Okay? Because they really are. To the Jew, this would have got their attention. And once Matthew got their attention in beginning his gospel with a genealogy, he led up to pointing out that Jesus did indeed fall in line with the throne of David. He was the heir. And the same scholar, N.T. Wright, he puts it like this. He says, any first century Jew would find this family tree both impressive and compelling. Like a great procession coming down a city street, we watch as the figures at the front and the ones in the middle, but all eyes are waiting for the one who comes in the position of greatest honor right at the end. This was the role of that genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus came right at the end in that place of honor. And this was proof that Jesus is the King. I know you don't think it's exciting yet, but one of these days you will. Okay, the fact that this baby is more than just a little baby, right? This is the baby who changed the course of history. He turned the world upside down. He brought good news to poor shepherds and good news to rich magi. But he was also a threat to the powers that be. He was a threat and an enemy to evil because he's the epitome of good. So that's why Herod was so terrified of him. See, he's a threat to the prideful because of his humility. He's a threat to the greedy because of his generosity. He's a threat to all that is evil because he is so good. And he came in a very humble way. And I agree that Jesus coming as a baby was a very humble way to come to the earth. He didn't come as a, as a warrior. He didn't come leading an army. He came as a baby. And I agree that's humble. But it's also kind of cocky, is it not? That Jesus could almost say, I am so powerful and so in control of everything. I can come as an infant in the first century and depend on a poor teenage girl and I can still accomplish my goal. Yes, it's humble, but that's also really bold. That's a confident move. (laughs) 
Because Jesus was showing, and He's the one in control. His purposes can take place over and above anyone else's. And one day, He'll come back to establish His throne. And, And that's the hope that we have on Christmas, really. We know that His kingdom is not fully established here yet. But He promised to come back. And we're waiting for His return. And this this hopeful expectation, this faith we have that in the end everything will be put back together and everything will be made right, this hope is one of the main differences that Christmas now makes as we move forward. We know that Jesus will one day come again, that he is our coming king. And I don't think we emphasize this enough, um, especially people my age. We don't tend to emphasize the second coming a whole lot. Uh, We have so much life ahead of us. We tend to focus on just what God is going to do in our life here. We don't really focus on the second coming all that much. It's not until people tend to get older that they focus a lot on the second coming. I spoke once at a big retirement home that had a big Sunday service in the morning. And I asked them, you know, what do you guys want to talk about? What would you like me to preach about? And without skipping a beat, they all said, second coming. Please talk about Jesus' second coming. The older generations are keyed into that, but younger generations, not as much. Not as much. But when we read the New Testament, it's hard to find a single page that doesn't actually mention the return of Christ. It's all over. The return of Christ is the main hope that we have in life above all else. Even if Jesus comes as our healer, just as Jesus healed Lazarus Lazarus, and raised him from the dead, okay, well, a few years later, he died again. The main hope is in Jesus' second coming. And that is the main difference that Christmas has made. That our hope is rooted in our coming King. And in the words of Pastor John Mark Comer, If hope does not look over the horizon to the life to come, it's Jesus' return, then it is not Christian hope at all. It is more like secular humanism with a twist of Christianity for the middle class. Our main hope is on Christ's return. And as we continually live in this middle space, as we continually cry out to God to put things back together, to come again, there will be times... When life doesn't make sense, when we're unable to connect the dots, and we hold to the hope that Jesus will one day come again. We hold to the reality that because of what happened on Christmas, we have a Savior, we have a Sanctifier, we have a Healer, we have a coming. And that's the difference that Jesus made. And that's the reality that we live into here in this weird middle space as we wait for him to come again. Okay, now the way that I want to end today is with a responsive reading. And this responsive reading comes from the Magnificat, which is also known as Mary's Song. It's recorded in Luke chapter 1 when Mary realized that she, a teenager in the Middle East, was the one through whom the Savior would be born. She was confused and disturbed, but she obeyed. And she accepted this this work that God was going to do, and so she was overwhelmed with joy, and she declared these words in the Magnificat. And I know the word Magnificat sounds like magic cat. Uh, Mary didn't have a magic cat. She just really understood what God was going to do. 
And so I'm going to read Mary's Magnificat portion. And the response part is the part that you will read. It's underlined and it's in bold. And the response part is a declaration of the truth of who Jesus is. Because Magnificat means my soul magnifies the Lord. And so we're going to read this out to magnify the Lord and who Jesus is. Okay, but here's the deal. Before we get started, responsive readings can either be really cool, powerful, and encouraging, or they can be really creepy. Okay? So we have to say this with some breath in our lungs. Say it like you mean it. Because if we just mumble these words like brainwashed drones, it's just going to be creepy. Okay? So let's try it out. Let's practice reading this, this first one. It's at the very top. Jesus Christ as our Savior. And for you at home, if you can see that too... Practice reading this first line. Jesus Christ is our Savior. Okay, I think we can do it. So would you please stand and finish with this responsive reading. Start on that first line. Jesus Christ is our Savior. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked upon His lowly servant girl. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. Jesus Christ, our Sanctifier. The Almighty has done great things for me, and and holy is His name. He has mercy on those who fear Him in every generation. Jesus Christ is our Healer. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away with empty hands. He has come to help of he has come to the help of his servant Israel for he has remembered his promise of mercy Jesus Christ is our coming king that's right Jesus our savior sanctifier healer and coming king I thank you for your sustained life. I thank you that even after Christmas, as we move away from celebrating your birth, that we can now live in the reality that you are still alive and active today. That we now have your Holy Spirit with us, guiding us and working in us. And God, we commit to magnifying you. We commit to living out your purposes on this earth and knowing you better. So we just come before you with a posture of thankfulness. And as we approach your table today to celebrate the work that you did on the cross I just remember how comprehensive your work truly was so Jesus we love you we praise you for being our savior praise you for being our sanctifier and our healer and our coming king and it's in Jesus name that I pray Amen Thank you for listening we hope you have been blessed Please join us again at Common Ground Church.